All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of being here this morning. Thank you for giving us truth, Father. We know that it's the truth that sets us free ultimately. Thank you for giving us the faculties to be able to understand it spiritually, Father, to make sense of it, to grow in your grace and knowledge as a result of it. Thank you for your Spirit's guidance, his teaching, his mentorship along the way. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be here this morning, and we pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope. We are most grateful and thankful for your Son's work on the cross, our Lord and Savior, to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this just a beautiful time to rejoice in, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> I'm going to probably have to keep my voice uh, a little lower today because, um, I don't know, I think it's uh, allergies or something. Um, I almost didn't make it Thursday night strains and it's it's a real weird feeling so just uh, bear with me um, uh, on Thursday we did a quick survey of purity in the Bible which is always good purity for starters we noted the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ let's note them again go to Matthew 5 verse 8 Matthew 5 verse 8 these are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ it includes the topic of purity, but there's more to be said this morning on this topic. There's actually a result of purity of heart in view. Matthew 5, verse 8 reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for is the result they shall see God. Jesus stated clearly that purity of heart is a blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart. But in fact, it's this second phrase that really brings it home for us. For they shall see God. They shall see God. Does this mean that the pure in heart see God walking around the streets? No. But also, yes. No, but also, yes, in the sense that we are able to see God in others who are children of his as we are. And don't just make that a, an observational statement. Make it... Um, a blessing. Not, it's not just seeing God and going, oh, isn't that nice that so-and-so is like Jesus, you know. But what does that have, what kind of an effect does that have on you? Like this morning even, even seeing each other uh, in this church of ours. Um, you should be encouraged. You should see God in that sense. And as a result, you're not just happy for someone else, 
you're encouraged yourself. There's a certain goodness. There's a certain blessing in seeing that in others. So we see Jesus in others. For example, up here on the board, Hebrews 12, 14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this holiness, this purity, same vein of thought, right? For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we have this sort of coming together of purity and holiness with seeing God. And that's what Jesus just said in Matthew 5, 8, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We see the same idea up here. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I look out uh, at you this morning, and I see the Lord uh, in you as you thirst for truth. I mean, you're here for a reason, and that's a beautiful thing. And I, I love that. And I'm encouraged by it. I'm not just happy for you. I'm blessed personally as a result of having that ability to be blessed like that. And you should feel the same way. Um, so when we read Jesus' words, the, the, the seeing that he's referring to is in the spiritual sense. Again, Matthew 5, 8 reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's also a, um, an eschatological uh, point of view there as well. In other words, we're going to see him for all of eternity, of course. But for this morning's uh, purposes, it's about seeing him experientially, practically speaking. I love the idea that we can, in time, see God the way Jesus described it. So the question then is, you know, well, that sounds fantastic, right? I mean, who doesn't want to see God? Who doesn't want to be blessed the way I just described? Seeing God in someone else and then being blessed yourselves. How can we be pure then so that this happens, so that we have this type of perception? Go to Psalm 119.9. Psalm 119.9. It's not like... God the Holy Spirit, when authoring the Bible, left us hanging. All we have to do is earnestly seek for the truth, and we find it. Psalm 119.9. How can I be pure in heart? How can I find this purity so that I'm blessed that way, so that I can see God in time? Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And that's one of many, many passages that we could have easily plucked out of Scripture um, that talks about this very thing. How can a young man keep his way pure? In other words, how do you find this purity of heart? You guard it according to your word. So the word of God, that's our answer. How do I be pure? How does this happen? How can I partake in this kind of a blessing where I see God? It's the Word of God. You're equipped to see that way. Um, and it really is. It's just so magnificent, this Word that we have access to 
that it's unparalleled in its ability to sanctify us. So whenever we talk about this process of purification, practically speaking, sanctification is right there with it because that's the whole idea of sanctification. Um, it means to purify our thoughts and even our actions and behavior. This is why uh, Jesus prayed that we be sanctified by the word. Up here on the board, John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Purify. He could have used a similar phrase and said purify them because that's exactly what's going on. You're already saved, but experientially, you have the vestiges, the leftovers, if you would, of sin, right? Uh, remember, uh, penalty, power, presence, right? The three phases of sanctification. And so we have this sin that exerts a certain power over us still, a certain influence over us still. So Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we are sanctified by the word. It has that cleansing effect. Just like taking a shower, so to speak. Up here on the board, Jesus' famous words in John 13, 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed, a reference to salvation, does not need to wash except for his feet. And that's a reference to letting the word wash the daily filth off of you. Remember in the old days, that would have made a lot of sense for them. They walked around in sandals where there was, you know, even open sewage, uh, just filth on the street, garbage, sewage, just filth, not like we have today. And so they constantly had to wash their feet. Um, but what he was saying is once you've bathed, once you're saved, you don't have to be saved again because you can't lose your salvation. But you can be filthy as you walk throughout your day. You can become dirty, you know, filthy. And you need to be washed. And that's the value of the Word of God, to let it sanctify you, a la John 17, 17, which is what Jesus prayed for. But is completely clean, and you are clean. He's speaking to his disciples. But not every one of you, referring to Judas. And so Judas was that sort of uh, standout individual. He was among the 12, the original 12, uh, but he was still unsaved. And so that was what Jesus was getting at. But the whole idea, again, is that the word washes you daily as a believer. David echoes this sentiment. Go to Psalm 51, verse 10. Psalm 51, verse 10. And so, again, we're just investigating well, I want this blessing, right, from Matthew 5, 8. I want to be blessed. I want to see God in time. Well, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, the, the ones that are purified, the ones that are going through this purification or the sanctification process. And the idea there, of course, is the more you're sanctified, the more you do see God uh, in self and others. Psalm 51, 10 Create in me a clean or a pure heart. Uh, the original Hebrew there actually translates pure as well. So create in me a clean or a pure heart, O God, and renew or repair in the original a right, uh, firm, steadfast spirit with, uh, within me. So that's David. Create in me a clean or pure heart, O God, and renew or repair a right, 
firm, steadfast spirit within me. I'll give you uh, McLaren up here on the board, theologian on Psalm 51.10. He comments, he sees that a spirit which is conscious of its relation to God and set free from the perturbations of sin will be a spirit firm and settled, established and immovable in its obedience and its faith. And so that's why David was praying for it. He wanted to get back to the rock. He wanted to see God face to face in in a figurative sense, right? He wanted to face him instead of being cockeyed because of sin. Instead of being perturbed, if you would, from sin itself, he wanted to get right with God. He said, purify, clean my heart, purify my thoughts, my behavior. Let me get back to you and renew me, right? Because this would be cockeyed, out of sync, out of sorts. Renew me. And this was part of his confession slash repentance, turning back to the Lord and receiving grace and mercy in doing so, asking God even to accelerate that process. Um, That's what he was praying for. Create in me a, a, a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. As God sanctifies us, we are more and more steadfast in our faith. And that's a beautiful thing, which is ultimately pleasing to him. The longer, the firmer you are in your faith, that's very pleasing to God. And therefore, he actually wills it. That is his will for you. He actually wills it. We saw that, or we see it actually. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. And so God wills this thing. He wills our sanctification. He wills our purification. He wants to bless you. Do you see it? He wants you to see him, to take it all the way back to Matthew 5, 8. So he wills it. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. <clears throat> so we're just looking at the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's his will. Your sanctification, the act of God purifying you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because that turns you away from him. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You're certainly not going to see him if you don't know him. You wouldn't even recognize him. Amen? That's the whole point. The more you understand him, the more you have of the word of God in your soul, the more you see him because you know him. You're able to recognize him. When you do look out at someone, you're able to see them. You're able to see God in them. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of being sanctified. And let me tell you, my friends, that is one of the most magnificent things because you know what? You could wake up on the wrong side of the bed And then see Christ in another person. Maybe it's someone you even are in the same household. 
And that's the blessing. You see Christ in someone else and it invigorates you. It gets you back to center, right? That's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. And that's one of the, the good things about what Monica's doing with that little text message ministry, right? It's just a little something. Maybe you get up on the wrong side of the bed and bing, you get a little text with some scripture. And next thing you know, you're like, hey, you know what? That's some good perspective. That's some, that's some good perspective to start the day off with, right? All those kinds of things. Um, that reveals even the will of God. Again, uh, let's see, verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, not the opposite, right? But in holiness, to be pure. That's what holiness, think of God. God is holy perfectly, which means he's perfectly pure. Completely, 100% free of sin. So you have this idea of impurity, right? It, it's like a disease, it infects us. And God has not called us for that but rather holiness. Sanctification in the practical, in the practical experiential sense, means to clean up your act. And I say that in lay terms, right? To clean up your act. That's what sanctification means. Don't, just clean up your act. Don't be, what are you doing over here? What's with all the, you know, like he said here, the sexual sins. Like, what are you doing? You're just defiling your body. You're defiling yourself. You're defiling your own mind when you think and behave that way. He has not called you to that. He has not called you for impurity, but he's called you in holiness. And so sanctification, if we think about sanctification in very practical terms, I mean, it's, it's kind of like our dad in heaven going, clean up your act, will you? Very practically speaking. Clean up your act. Um, it means to be made increasingly righteous in the eyes of your creator. And you know what? As I wrote that, this idea, he has the right to will that for you. Like, not just, it's not just a desire, it's not just a will, but he has the right. He is the sovereign one in the universe, right? So he has the right to will it for you. And he also has the right to bring it to pass. Up here on the board, the Amplified Philippians 1.6 reads, I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, the time of his return. And so he has the right, not just to will it, but also to bring it to pass. And that's one of the, that's one of the litmus tests for, a, for salvation itself. If you claim that you're saved, and then nothing happens. If you claim that you're saved, and then literally nothing happens in your life towards Christ, you probably have a problem. Not probably. Theologically, you have a real problem. 
it means you're not saved because that would render God impotent and that would run contrary to what you're reading on the board. God wills it, God does it. And when you're one of his own children, he gets the job done. Remember, what is it, Isaiah 53 or 55 or somewhere in there, 58. He said, if my, my word never fails, my word never comes back empty. And so if he says he's going to do this thing, he says he's going to sanctify you, then guess what? If you're truly one of his own children, truly, it will happen. And you'll be able to look back and go, it's, yeah, yeah, it's happened or it's happening. So we noted one particular passage that speaks to this, you know, this cleaning up our acts type thing, this purification and it spokes, or it speaks to external and internal sanctification. Go to James 4.8. James 4.8. James was Jesus' brother, and he didn't hold back. He had a, Obviously, if you read the book of James, you know that he was fighting the good fight. You know? He was the guy that said, you know, um, show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith, my faith by my works. He, he was, was kind of like the, the guy that just said, let's just, let's just throw this thing right on the table. If you have no fruit, you know what? Your faith is dead. That's what he said. And that's kind of what I was just alluding to a minute ago. If you say you're saved and you have no fruit, your faith is dead, which means it's impotent. It means it's not, you're actually not saved, in other words. But he also said this later on in the, in the book. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, and that was a reference to cleaning up your external behavior. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And that's a reference to cleaning up your internal thoughts, you double-minded. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, stop running around like that and being all... Let, let your unholy behavior, your unholy thinking, let that turn to mourning and weeping. Let your, mourning, uh, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Let that thing happen to wake you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So James wrote pretty sternly about experiential sanctification because he was expressing God's will for us. That is God's will. God, I had that discussion with someone last week, I think it was. Um, God doesn't reward you for living in sin. He's never going to reward you for living in sin. And so when I read verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, I say, praise the Lord, because that's what he wants for you. He does not want you to be all hunky-dory, living in sin. And you don't just get to confess it away, right? Like I taught on Thursday, where you're in bed with sin, your arms around it, and you're snuggling with sin, you go, yeah, yeah, this is happening, Lord and nothing happens, you don't do anything about it. How long do you think he's going to allow that to stay? 
if you're one of his own. He's not. He's not going to leave you alone. His spirit, he loves you. His spirit is not going to stop nagging you about that thing in your life. And, and a lot of people, um, wrongly, sadly, think that just confessing it to the Lord is going to fix everything. And it doesn't. That's the whole point. That's why we have passage after passage after passage that says, hey, listen, stop it. Clean up your act. Like, stop it. I'm not going to let you be happy while you're living in sin. So stop. That's the point. So James wrote very sternly about experiential sanctification because he was expressing God's will for us. Remember the context of the uh, past two messages regarding this topic of purity. We ended up on this topic because of this verse up here on the board. Romans 12, verse 9 let love be genuine, right? Not hypocritical. Let it be pure, not hypocritical. Uh, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Again, a genuine love is a pure love. So reflect on what the Spirit's been teaching us as of late. Uh, he's been pointing out lately a lot of good things, um, but also that we have a definite role in this sanctification of ours. There's a role of ours. That's why you can see God never um, fails. Before he, before the, I think my personal viewpoint of the sin unto death is that you've basically come to a screeching halt somehow. You just refuse to let go of that living in sin. So he says, I'm just going to take you out. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're just such a stubborn jackass right now. I'm just going to remove you. Right? I'm just going to remove you from planet Earth. Um, but what's the implication? The implication there is that we have a definite role in this sanctification of ours. Otherwise, we wouldn't have commands that say, you know, in lay terms, clean up your act. We wouldn't have those commands if we weren't a part of it, if our free will wasn't a part of the process. And again, that's why you see some people, woof, they just go, right? They're saved, and because they're humble, they accelerate. And they're purified at what appears to be a uh, faster rate. And some people, you know, the slope is like this, right? And then, like I said, if you ever go flat or down, he's just going to take you out. Um, but nonetheless, there's a humility aspect of this thing. And that's our, you know, that's our peace, if you would, in sanctification. So we have a definite role in the sanctification, even though it's by the grace of God that it's even possible to happen. As we've been uh, studying lately, the first big step in this sanctification is confession. Uh, I can't emphasize the importance of that enough because what is anything without first agreeing to, with God about the subject? And then how do you agree with God if you don't have any of this? What are you agreeing to? 
Oh, you do like the religious? Oh, I see what you do. Oh, you're, oh, you're smart. You say, I know God. Haven't looked at my Bible anyways. But I know God, and he and I are like this. Wait a minute. You have a conception of God that looks nothing like this. You have some preconception, some idea of what you, what you want God to be like. And, you, and you, yeah, you're oriented to that thing, but the problem is that's not God. So you got a lot of people out there calling themselves Christians, if they even are, who confess wrongly even. They're saying the same thing to a God that doesn't exist or is a God that they've manufactured against their own human sensibilities. That God they like. They don't like the one that people murdered because he was such a, you know, in-your-face preacher, Jesus. They don't like that Jesus. They like the, they like the watered-down version of him, the, the little wimpy-looking one that, you know, is, oh, shucks, gee, shucks, shucks, oh, golly gee. Can you believe in me, please? You know, they like that guy because he, he lines up with their ridiculous flesh because their flesh wants God to be this way. And they say, oh, I do confess to God, right? And the God that I confess to says, I can stay right in bed here. I can stay right here living in sin. And because I confessed it, we're good. That's all a complete ridiculous lie from the pit of hell. But that's what people do. Nonetheless, the first big step, I'm talking about godly confession, you say the same thing to this. Right? Does that make sense? You're saying the same thing as the Holy Bible, the Word of God. You know, it's His Word, right? You're saying the same thing that He said, right? This is Him talking to us right here. Right? How do you say the same thing to God? How do you confess if you don't know His Word? If you don't know what He actually has to say about a topic, how do you confess to be oriented to How do you confess anything unless you know this, which is His Word? You know the answer to that. It's impossible. You're just going to confess to some other God that doesn't exist. And usually, it's some emotional God. Well, that God that I made up makes me feel good. Right? I think I wrote a blog not that long ago called Emotional Salvation Isn't Enough. Will God help you with your emotions? Sure. But is salvation necessarily an emotional thing? No, it's not. Not even close. It's a judicial thing. You will have resulting emotions about it, sure. But it's not an emotional salvation. It's a judicial one. Anyways, the first big step in this sanctification, especially since we partake in it, is confession. But with the disclaimer that the confession has to be godly against the word of God. We have to agree with God about what righteousness actually is. We cannot approach the throne of grace in self-righteousness and then expect him to bless us. A big part of experiential sanctification is purification from our own self-righteousness because that's all we show up with, right? Even after we're saved, okay, we're saved. We denied ourselves, but our habits, our momentum, 
we're still self-righteous to the core in many ways, right? So a big part of experiential sanctification is purification from our own self-righteousness. And purification, if we are to use the metallurgical analogy, means to rid ourselves of impurities. Imagine, you know, like pure gold. Well, when it's not pure gold, what's in there? You know, flecks of other not gold metals. Basically, they're in there. And you, 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 the idea is to purify it, to purify it. You know, heat it up, put it in the crucible, heat it up, see, scrape the slag off. Remember all these times I've taught you about uh, metallurgy, and that's the analogy in the Bible. So purification is to put it under fire and then scrape the slag off. So often that's my job here in this church, for all of your sake. I put you under fire. How do I know? Because a lot of times you squirm. <laughs> Honestly, you're like, ooh, that's hot. Ooh, right? It's like, you're like, st you're like stand on, you know when you walk in the hot sand, people are like, ooh, ooh, right? I can see it in you. You're like, ooh, this is, I don't know, it's getting hot in here. It's purification. That's him doing what he said he's going to do up here on the board. Remember Proverbs 17.3? The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Remember that? Yeah. How does he do it? He puts the heat on. He turns the heat up. And then what comes out? Ooh, some slag. And you're like, oh, man, I thought I had all this. I thought I was good. Nope. So, again, remember all that work that we, or the Spirit performed in us as we dug our heels into that verse. It was fantastic. And again, it was, about, it was all about testing our hearts for the sake of sanctification. Something we noted earlier, and uh, I'll just read it, Psalm 51.10, where David said, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart. Purify my heart, in other words. Right? O God, and renew, repair a right, a firm, steadfast spirit within me. So the Lord tests our hearts for impurities. Well, what are the impurities? When, uh, was it First Peter, I think, um, he says, be holy because I'm holy. Be pure because I'm pure. That's his desire for us. That's his will for us. Well, what makes us pure? What's the impurity? Sin. Sin. That's the impurity. So when he identifies sin through the word in the spirit, it's our job to humbly accept and agree with his assessment as what we would call an assayer. An assayer is a metallurgical term. It's that person that does the actual work of purification of metals, right? That's an assayer's job. They assess the metal. So all of that is just step one. Test my heart. Reveal to me what's going on. Show me the impurities. Put me in the crucible. Let the impurities come to the top. Is it enough? You ready? Is it enough to go through that process, have the pure impurities percolate up to the top? Remember the visual I gave you? It was like gold, molted gold in the, in the crucible, and then on the top was that gray, nasty stuff. Right? To have all that slag come to the top and then go, cool, see you later. What, what, what's the next logical step? 
Let's, let's, let's take it off. Let's say, yuck, that's gross. Let me turn away from it. Let me get rid of that. Let me get that out of my life. We call that repentance. So it's not enough just to be put into the crucible and then say, yep, I see it. I see the impurity. It's not enough. There has to be repentance. That's step one. So again, as the Spirit pointed out on Thursday, that's most definitely not, step one is most definitely not the end of the story. It's only the gateway. A believer must repent of their sin after they agree with God regarding it. They have to repent from it. And that's what we noted in Romans 12, 9 that said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. That was, I gave you the original language, it's like, oof, right? Hold fast or cling to what is good. So repentance, by definition, means to turn away from something. Well, the idea is that when the good Lord reveals sin in our lives and we confess it, we are to turn from it. In other words, repent. That's the whole idea. That's the pathway to healing that David was getting at. Heal my heart. Purify my heart. Right? Test my heart, he says elsewhere. Show me where my heart is wrong, he says uh, in somewhere else in Psalm. I can't remember the, the verse. But same writer. It, and, and David was the one with the heart after God, right? Because that's what God wanted out of him. That's what he wants out of us. He just wants us to say the same thing so that we can turn away from it, so we can wipe the slag off the top and be purified all the more, a.k.a. sanctified, and to be more specific, experientially sanctified. If you're saved, you're already positionally sanctified. Up here on the board, here's the disastrous alternative that the Spirit gave us on Thursday. Confession without repentance. Um, to confess a sin and then refuse to repent of it is actually worse than to not to confess it in the first place. I think I needed a few more twos in there. Did you hear that? To not to confess it, to confess it in the first place. Nobody. To confess a sin and then refuse to repent of it is actually worse than to not confess it in the first place. Go to Luke 12, 47. Luke 12, 47. In other words, if he turns the light on and says, hey, I can see you in bed with that sin. What say you? And you go, yeah, I see it, but I'm not getting out of bed. That's worse than not having the lights turned on in the first place because now you know better. He's actually revealed it to you. How many of you, honestly, right, until you matured a little bit in the faith, you didn't even know a certain something was wrong. And then you read it for the first time, like, oh, I've been doing that one for years. Well, you couldn't, you didn't confess it because you didn't know. And so, as we're going to see in verse 47 and 48, you might have received a, a lesser punishment, a fewer lashes. But what if the lights went full on? You read Holy Scripture, you were completely convicted in the moment. Oh, no, I've been doing that for a long time. And you go, I'm still not changing. Well, what does Holy Scripture say? Luke 12, 47. And that servant who knew his master's will 
but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to, him, to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. That makes sense. Again, the point on the board to confess a sin and then refuse to repent of it is actually worse than not to confess it in the first place. If we're going to be purified or sanctified, then we've got to confess and repent. And repent. We looked at Peter's epistle to help drive this point home. Let's review that. Go to 1 Peter 1.13. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. So you have to confess and repent and turn from it. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded as opposed to polluted with sin, because that's what happens. Your mind gets all fuzzy because of sin. Being sober-minded instead of intoxicated or polluted with sin, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, in other words, pure in thought and behavior, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I just referred to that, right? And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's what? What does it say? Deeds. Do you see it? Deeds. That includes your behavior. You understand? It judges each one impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of in, uh, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, <clears throat> excuse me, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Up here on the board, I gave you this on Thursday. This has a sprinkling of both positional and experiential sanctification. Having purified your souls, a reference to positional sanctification, believers are obliged to, quote, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The new heart we are given at salvation, and that's a reference to experiential sanctification. In other words, use that which God has given you by grace. Use it to his glory. Use the gifts that he's given you to his glory. That's the will of God. That's the will of God. Again, verse 22, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. All of that was to amplify the principles found in this verse up here on the board. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, we have to take all of that back to our primary course of study, which frankly has been a lot of fun. Go to uh, Proverbs 17, verse 6. Proverbs 17, verse 6. We'll see what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are the pure of heart, right? They shall see God. Wasn't that, what was that, Matthew 5, uh, 5, 8, right? What does that look like? Where is that, where is it magnificently displayed, honestly? And it's so, it's, I'm, all right, I'm happy and I'm sad at the same time when I come to this verse. This verse is magnificent, right? It's beautiful. But there's something about our PC culture that jabs at my ribs when I teach it. Like, hey, you know, not everybody has that. You know, not everybody has a, a godly family. Not a, you know, especially today's day and age, right? I mean, families are just exploding all over the place. And so... It's rare that you actually see generations of families that are aligned with God. They're just smatterings, right? And I'm probably speaking to the vast majority of you. You're like, yep, that's my family. My family blew up when I was a kid, right? It, everybody's all over the place. So in one sense, I'm like, this is so beautiful. Like if I think about the holiness of God and the way that he views his own family, like, we're children of his, right? It's beautiful. We fellowship together. We have fun together. I even think of this group, right? We're family in my eyes. And so we have a certain, like, you know, goodness here. And it's beautiful because there's, like, I mean, I think Andrea came in. Yeah. So I got, like, you know, you know Benny's not even a year. And John's, like, 110. So we got this huge thing, right? He just married young, so, you know. You got this huge chasm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like generations. There's at least four generations in here. And we all love Jesus. And it's beautiful. And so, who, you know, I hope you know what I'm getting at. Like, it's a beautiful thing that's being taught. It's a beautiful subject. We do have it. Nobody in here should ever feel, well, I'm excluded because my earthly family stinks and blew up. And heck, I, I even made some mistakes when I was younger. Don't feel that way. Like, cling to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. And don't begrudge things like this. Like, don't be like, well, since I can't, I don't have that, um, then, I, you know, I don't, I'm not filled with joy when I read this. You know, don't do that. Let this thing be beautiful to you. Let God's ways of doing things be proof 
to you. Right? So anyways, I'm just sharing because it's like a fine line. It's, 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 it's real difficult to think about sometimes um, the reality. The reality is nowadays Proverbs 17.6 is like ancient history when it comes to families, right? Because they're usually blown up to the, they're all over the place, especially up here in Massachusetts where, you know, we're, we're so ungodly as a society up here. Nobody wants Jesus up here anymore. How the heck do you get three or four generations to line up with Jesus so that we have something like this? I don't know. Anyways, hopefully that made sense. Proverbs 17, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. I want to give you three other translations to add a little clarity. Up here on the board, the first one is the Amplified, Proverbs 17, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of aged men, and the glory of children is their fathers, who live godly lives. So I hope you understand what that's pointing to. In other words, the children are looking at the dads. The grandfather's looking at the grandchildren, but the children's looking at the dad. You see? It's kind of like, I got a picture for you here in a moment, but let's look at the uh, New Living Translation next, up here in the board, the NLT. Grandchildren are the crowning glory of the aged. Parents are the pride of their children. And of course, all of this is in a godly sense, right? A grandfather that looks down and says, hey, look at that. Look at my grandkid. They love Jesus too, like me. That's beautiful. And then the child says, hey, look at my mom and dad. Or look at my dad in this case, right, specifically, but it includes parents. Look at my dad. Look at, he loves Jesus. She loved, my mom loves Jesus. That's awesome. Right? And you see this generational goodness. Let's not... Let's not begrudge God of the divine institution of family. Let's not begrudge him of the beauty of what he intends, what a holy family looks like. Let's look at it and say, that's awesome. Maybe I don't have it in an earthly sense, but it's beautiful that I can see it, that I know that this is what God had intended from eternity past for families. And maybe, just maybe, I don't know, Maybe, maybe you're more inclined to reach out to family. I don't know. And then finally, the message in verse 6. Old people are distinguished by grandchildren. In other words, the grandchildren amplify and um, you know, make the old people stand out. Uh, children take pride in their parents. So what we have here is for lack of a better term, like a bi-directional thing going on, bi-directionality of relationship that actually describes a godly family. Um, but not just the, immediately, the immediate family, the generational family that's the hallmark of godliness, right? Up here on the board, here's my picture. I hope you can understand that, right? On the right, you have grandfather's godly pride that points down. And then a child's godly pride that points up one level, right? And then if you look at how, generation, how generationally that looks, right? Uh, you see how tightly woven the family becomes? It's almost like stitching. 
you see a, a unified element called family. Family. Think about that. Think about what this picture is what God wants for godly families. And then think about what the world has done to that. Think about it. How many, I mean, think about what the world has done to that. That's the awfulness that we have to accept. But like I said at the start of this, do not begrudge God of the beauty of that. Because that's his intention. Right? And, and, and we do still see it once in a while. Maybe in our own lives. Uh, maybe in the lives of others. And we say that's a beautiful thing. Um, and just as a balance statement, um, generational blessings and curses too are a common depiction in the Bible. Uh, up here on the board, here's a curse verse. I just wanted you to know that God doesn't just bless generations, but he also curses them. Um, I would say that in many ways, unfortunately, sadly, American families fall on the curse side on average. Numbers 14 to uh, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And so it's the, 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 the design, the, the divine design of family, blessing, and then there's the, the perversion of it, cursing. Right? Satan loves this one, which is why he's so prevalent in the United States. He's blown up the family. He's blown up marriages. He's blown up families. Blown up. I mean, uh, I'm thinking about that passage that you know where children have zero respect for their their parents anymore, right? Insolent, arrogant, uh, disrespectful to parents. You know the verse I'm talking about, right? That's America today. And when you have that, that fabric that I just painted isn't there. Uh, that child doesn't say, I'm so proud of my parents because they love Jesus. They're like, get me the hell away from my parents. I hate them. All they do is just oppress me. They're just jerks. You know, they're blah, blah, blah. And they're their thinking's wrong. That's why they're thinking that way. They're not saved, most likely, I would think. And so Satan says, that's all I have to do. That's all I have to do is blow up the family. Anyways, the Word of God often speaks to generational blessings as well as curses. For example, go to Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3. So let's not begrudge God. That's my point. Can we just have a good conversation? Sometimes I get weary sometimes that I constantly have to have disclaimers. You know, like almost like it's like I have to apologize for teaching something pure just because my audience possibly uh, doesn't align with it per se because of personal sin. Um, Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So again, that's the beautiful thing about the divine institution, the way God designed it to be, the way God wills it to be. That's what it looks like. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. Think about it. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. He also chose to make us in his own image. So it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, I mean, you are his children. We do cry out, Abba, Father. We do call him Father. Family is a big deal to God. So is marriage. Who asked you to marry him? Jesus did. Who are you betrothed to? Jesus. Marriage and family are a big deal to God. And we're made in his image. And therefore, he wants it to be a big deal to us as well. And part of this purification, this sanctification, is getting us to realize that. That marriage is holy. Family is holy. And you need to respect that. And if you're in bed with some sin about either one of those things, get them the hell out. That's the point. If we understand what God designed to be good, it's not broken families. Right? It's not broken marriages. It's not dysfunctional children. It's that thing I showed you. It's, it's a purity that glues us all together as a family unit. So family is a big deal to God. Some of you are like, geez, I wish my parents knew that because they were just awful. I get it, right? I'm not saying my, my mom's like, wait a minute. She's like, I'm right here. I can hear you. I'm not saying it that way. I'm saying that I understand that nobody's family was perfect. Some of you are like, yeah, they're still messed up. Okay, I get it. But let's not begrudge the beauty of what God wills for family. Okay? That's what the Spirit's teaching us. Family is a big deal to God. And so it's got to be a big deal to us. Of course, Satan knows this and does everything he can to destroy marriages and families. Destroy marriages and families. But we'll save that ugly topic for another day. Um, for now, let's focus on the blessings of family. For now, I also, look, I, don't, I also don't want to introduce the, you know, all of that dysfunction that often comes to mind First, when we think about our own families, leave that out. If you've got a dysfunctional family, look, I don't want you to think about it right now. Just don't. Think about the beauty of the way God wants it to be. And let's not begrudge him this time. Let's not let our own dysfunction. Some of you are like, well, I'm part of the dysfunction. Okay, great. Confess it, you see. You can at least say, I've been a part of this dysfunction. And then what's the next thing? Confess 
Thank you. Now's your opportunity to repent from it. You can't change yesterday. Last time I checked, no one's ever invented a time machine. So don't live in that guilt like that. Do you understand? But you have to confess it to be able to move and repent from it to move on. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck, right? You're going to wake up in the same dysfunction, in other words. I want you to focus on what is good. What, is a, what a good, godly family looks like as the Bible describes it. And speaking of, up here on the board, this week's blog is titled, The Friends and Family Plan. The Friends and Family Plan. Um, certainly complimentary to this morning's message. As you think about godly family blessings, keep in mind the cause of said blessings due to the purity we learned about earlier. There's a reason that he lays things out the way he does. Think about the purity that we learned about earlier when you think about godly family blessings. For it's this genuine love that exists in a godly family. Genuine love. I don't just love my parents because they give me stuff, because they're enabling jackasses who spoil me. I don't just love my grandparents for that reason. I don't love my kids because they put on a good show in the pageants I forced them into. I don't just, you know, I'm getting at. Let love be genuine. Love for love's sake. Love to bring glory to God. That's genuine love that exists in a godly family based on who we are as God's children that expresses itself through generations of people resulting in blessings. I want you to think about that construct. Think about that. Take all the dysfunction and the impurity. You know, even, I don't know, some of you are like, I feel bad for myself. Just take that out. Try to get what's in the Bible. Let that be your true north when it comes to family, okay? Because it's not right in the eyes of God to shoot for a messed up family or to start off and look at families the wrong way. Put that as your centerpiece. Put the divine institution of family front and center, regardless of where you are or how you can compare or anything like that. And as I was thinking about that, and I've got to close because I'm bringing Todd up here to do uh, communion service for us. Um, I was thinking about Christmas being right around the corner. And this year, thanks be to God, uh, my son Sean will be back home from the academy, and Joey and Andrea will be celebrating their first Christmas with their new baby, Benjamin. Um, and I think about my mom cooking Christmas goodies and I think about Jane Morton. Jane, this is my shameless plug. I think about Jane Morton bringing me some of that chocolate toffee that she makes. Just saying. I wouldn't object, Jane. Right. I think about Chris. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're family. You're like, Jane's not in your... Jane's part of my family. I love Jane. She's part of my family. Right? And when I think about that family structure, I think of godliness. I know she makes it for me. Right? And you guys just get blessing by association. It's all about me. She's like, I'm going to make fun. So Pastor Ed and the rest of you is just going to get the overflow. And she gives you all the burnt edges and I get the middle. I'm just I'm making this total thing up. But Jane, seriously, are you taking this down? Right? <laughs> right? I think about Christmas and I think of family. 
Not the presence. The presence irked me. The whole presence thing drives me berserk, right? I think about family. I think about Jesus' presence. I mean, Christmas, Christmas. I think about Jesus being the centerpiece. And I also think about all of you. That's the God's honest truth. I always think of all of you, and I consider all of you part of my family too. Some of you are like, uh, no, let's time out. <laughs> right? But it's true. And, you know, some of you are a lot older than me. And some a lot younger. Many. Right? But faith has brought us all together. Several generations worth. We're all here as, as family. And it's, it's very good, isn't it? Yeah, it's very good. And we're blessed. You know how blessed you are? Just to be here this morning? To be nodding your head? What did we start off with? You shall see God. When you're purified, when you, start, when you see family for what it really is designed to be from God's perspective, and then you start seeing it in something like this, you're blessed. You see God. You know you wouldn't be here with me if it wasn't for him. You'd be like, oh, that guy. Right? You just wouldn't. We pro- this is an eclectic group, right? We come from all over the place, from all different walks of life. And somehow we come together regularly, thanks God, thanks be to God, we come together, um, and it's a beautiful thing. What binds us? Up here on the board. Right? That's what binds us. That's what brings us together. What do you think is the, 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 the glue in the family? What do you think the glue in a marriage is? Sex? Oh, my goodness. You couldn't be wronger. Is that a word? More wrong? wronger Hey. <laughs> No takesy-backsies. Family. You're stuck. Right? You couldn't be more wrong. You couldn't be more wrong about family being spoiling children or, I don't know, whatever goes wrong. No. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about love. Let me just go a little bit further, and then Todd, get ready to come up, okay? I wanted to close with a quick survey of love in the Bible. There's just so much in the Bible um, on the topic of love. And uh, especially those, you know, there's many passages where we're called to love the way we just noted in Peter's writing up here on the board. 1 Peter 1.22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let's go to one, yeah, let's go to one verse and, we'll, and we'll, I'll bring up DJ. Go to 1 Corinthians 16, 14. And this will put a nice wrapper on this morning's message. I want you to think about family. Think about where we're at in Proverbs 17, verse 6. Think about God's viewpoint on marriage, on family, on children. And then think about the grandparents, the parents, and the children all at once, and if they just abided in this truth, in this command, right? 
1 Corinthians 16, 14. Very simple. Let all that you do be done in love. Just think of the family structure. If, and I'm talking about a godly love. If everybody just abided in this, say this Christmas, you get together and everybody in the room somehow loves the way we're called to love in that moment. And then take that and add it up and say, you mean like all the generations? Yeah, all the generations in the room. Just put that together. Does that not bring glory to God? Is that not the most beautiful scene? Instead of people like, okay, here's your present. Here's yours. And the kids are going. This isn't the color I wanted. This isn't the action figure I wanted. Instead of all that garbage, how about just love? How about that you can imagine generations being together in the same room celebrating the indescribable gift? Where does that put you? How does that? How is that? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's what God, that's how God thinks of family. Let all that you do be done in love. Amen? All right, DJ's going to come up, and we're going to uh, put that. Yeah, there you go. Start some music if you can. Gentlemen, pass out the elements. Good morning. The Spirit just wanted me to read scripture this morning, so I'm going to stay out of it as much as I can. The psalmist's prayer is always appropriate as we seek to create a proper attitude for the observance of the Lord's Supper. Psalms 139, 23 through 24 states, Search me, O God, and know my heart, Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. In preparation for the Lord's Supper, I'd like to read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. These are the passages that foretold what our Lord was thinking on the cross. Psalm 22 states, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Basham surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot should, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And sheep and like a sheep that's before his shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generations who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. At the last, at the last supper, Jesus in his humanity took the celebration of the rescue of Israel, the Passover, from the angel of death in Egypt and in the upper room, he transitioned it to the celebration for us so we can remember his death till he returns. In Hebrews 9, it states the new celebration, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We are commanded to celebrate this solemn event in remembrance of him. Let us celebrate. In Corinthians it states, For I received from the Lord that, that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, 
he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of our Lord. Let us drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honor of celebrating and worshiping you through this time as we fellowship together and learn your son's mind. We thank you for the gifts and the grace you have given to us through your son's work on the cross. All good things are from above. May we use what is given to us through faith and bring it to the lost in love. So some may see your love, mercy, and grace, and the Holy Spirit can use the information that is our honor to share and to bring to them and use it so they'll repent and may be saved. Finally, Father, thank you for your guidance through your spirit. So as we travel from our refueling station here this morning out to the world, you me gave us this, the words and the information of your love, of your grace, so that we can fill the command of delivering your gospel to the lost. Father, we pray all of this through your son's precious name, and by the power of your spirit we do pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>